Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. I really think that the parable for our times in many areas, including education, is the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> we, we need the little child to walk up and down the halls of our schools and say, the emperor has no clothes. This isn't education. This may, this may look like education. We may have conned ourselves into thinking that this is education, but it isn't. And at some level, we all know it. Dedicated teachers give their provocative vision of what an enlightened school system could be like. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Set with serious predicaments like violence in schools and teacher burnout, our educational system is in a time of transition. As it wrestles with these practical problems, there's also a growing sense that in many cases what people learn in school doesn't adequately prepare them for the challenges of real life. Teachers sometimes grow deeply frustrated by a system they see as obsessed with test results and competitive grading at the expense of a more meaningful learning experience. In this half hour, we'll listen to two committed and visionary educators, Parker Palmer in Madison, Wisconsin, and Nell Noddings in New York City. In working with young people and in books they've written about schools, both have taken the time to ask what is the heart of education. Beyond equipping students with technical skills, what kind of human beings should our schools seek to produce? In our rush to make children ready for the job market, are we forgetting their souls? What is our duty to impart wisdom to the next generation? And how can the values and structure of today's educational system be modified to accommodate a way of learning which addresses the whole person? We hear first from Dr. Parker Palmer, author of the best-selling book, The Courage to Teach, which draws on his career as professor and now leader of a national project to help renew the spirits of educators. I was teaching a course at a private liberal arts college 
where I wanted to connect my students to the, to the text that we were reading. It happens to be a very famous book about American culture that we were reading. And I wanted to connect my students to that text by asking them to, to write little autobiographical vignettes, little stories of their own lives as we went along through the topics that were being covered by this book. So if the theme in the book was uh, what American culture thinks about freedom, uh, then I would want them to write a little autobiographical story. What I was taught about freedom at home or in church or wherever. That was my idea of connecting the lives of the students to the big story that we were studying in the textbook. At the end of that class, a young man came up to me and said, Dr. Palmer, in these autobiographical stories you want us to write, is it okay to use the word I? That was a kind of stunning moment, and I think every teacher knows it was a critical moment because if I had rolled my eyes or raised my eyebrows, I think a young man who just made himself very vulnerable might have felt crushed. So as gently as I knew how, I said, yes, of course, you may use the word I. I don't know how you would fulfill this assignment without doing that, but tell me, why did you ask? And he said, because I'm a history major, and every time I use the word I in a paper, I'm downgraded a half or a full grade for it. Well, to me, that's a story, a very sad story, about the culture of disconnection in education, where the selfhood of the student is swept under the rug um, on behalf of some myth of objective knowledge. And, and I think what, what that does is to, is to create an educated person in this society, and I'll put educated in quotes, who knows a lot about the external world and how to manipulate it, but knows hardly anything about what's going on inside him or herself. That's a, that's a recipe for danger, and I think we can see the danger all around us. You mean because you're almost trained not to discover and express your own feelings. Yes, and you're, you're trained not to discover and express your own feelings. You're really trained to stay ignorant about who you are and what the inner dynamics of your life are all about. You, you, you learn nothing about your own anger, your own fear, your own egotism, uh, your own desire to control, nor do you learn much about your own hope, your own faith, um, your own goodwill, your, your own desire to connect with others. A better model of education for us would reach more deeply into the selfhood of our students that would help them as they learn the great subjects that we teach to learn about themselves in the process. I, I can give you a story from my own education that's one I, I think about a lot because I believe I need to think about it. I, I was taught about the history of the Third Reich, the Holocaust, the murder of six million Jews and God knows how many gypsies and protesting Christians and people with mental and physical disability, anyone who didn't fit the mold. I was taught about all of that 
in this objective way, this way that kept the object of study disconnected from my own selfhood. I was taught not to use the word I, as it were, in studying the Holocaust. And the result of that was that I somehow imagined for many, many years that all of that had happened on another planet you mean emotionally you kept it at such a distance? Exactly. I was, I was taught it at a distance, and I held it emotionally at distance. I never connected myself with it. And as a result of that, I, there were two things I failed to learn that I should have learned if, in order to claim myself as an educated person. One is that the very community I grew up in practiced its own form of anti-Semitism. I grew up on the North Shore of Chicago, in the 50s, in Wilmette, Illinois. And if you were a Jew in that area at that time, you did not live in Wilmette, nor did you live in Kenilworth, nor did you live in Winnetka. You lived in Glencoe, which was a community ghettoized to keep them from people like us. I didn't learn that. I should have learned it. It was part of my story, not another planet or another species. The second thing that I did not learn because of this disconnection between the subject and myself, I failed to learn that I have within me what you might call a fascism of the heart, by which I mean a tendency when the difference between you and me gets too great, when you threaten my conception of what's good or true or beautiful, I will find some way to kill you off. I won't do it with a gun or a, a gas chamber, but I'll do it with a label. Oh, you're just a fill-in-the-blank, and we have all kinds of ways of filling in that blank. You're just a woman, or you're just a Republican, or you're just an administrator, or you're just whatever it is that, that I think is not trustworthy. And in doing so, I render you irrelevant to my life. So, so your contrary view of what's good, true, and beautiful doesn't have to bother me any longer. I've done you in. Somebody once said, when we start to categorize, we stop seeing. I think that's true. And I also think when, when we start to categorize, we, we start killing. It, I think of it sometimes as, you know, how we love to net a butterfly and chloroform it and run a pin through it and stick it in a box. You can study it, but it's dead. And there's something in us that fears the butterfly on the wing. <laughs> so what kind of an education system or an educational experience would liberate students to think on their own in a way that can be constructive? I think the models have to do with, with, first of all, with things like breaking down the walls between the school and the world. Um, programs which involve students in academic studies that are joined with real-life immersion in the world tend to be programs where students are, are motivated to learn and, and get smarter faster. Um, quick example, University of Michigan over the last several years, big course in political science, 
two, three hundred students in a lecture hall, the professor did an experiment. Uh, half those students got the standard curriculum, read the books, listen to the lectures, take the tests. The other half got all of that plus the requirement that they find a field work assignment of some sort in the city of Ann Arbor. And since this was a basic political science course, uh, your options were pretty wide. You could serve at a soup kitchen, or you could work in a political campaign, or volunteer in a voluntary association of some sort, all kinds of possibilities. He, for several years, tracked the grades, uh, compared the grades of those two groups. And what he found was that the students who had the field assignment did better at the academic side of political science than the students who just had the academics. Well, that's a little counterintuitive, because you might think, well, the students who had the field assignment had less time to spend on their books, and they would also begrudge the fact that they had an extra assignment. But what we know in education, I think, is that when you break down the walls between academics and the world, or let's say between the mind and the heart, <laughs> when you join the heart and the mind, when a student is not only studying the statistics of poverty, but volunteering at a soup kitchen, feeding people who are poor, that student is animated to learn in a way that's, that's much uh, more compelling than if you're just reading it in a book. The, so, the, stu the student is simply engaged. Simply engaged, and engagement, especially the engagement of the heart, deepens the engagement of the mind. <laughs> Um, we, we make a very false division in our educational system between the heart and the mind. Um, and I hear it all the time. I, when I talk with folks in higher education about some of these things, and I talk about attending to the student's heart, someone will say, oh, you want us to be therapists, not professors. <laughs> and I'll say, no, I want you to be good professors. <laughs> I want you to understand that teaching involves teaching the whole person. Because if you can address the issues of the heart, you're going to draw the mind into its best work more, more deeply. Talking with Parker Palmer in Madison, Wisconsin. educational system that helps to liberate the spirit of a young person must do so in part through nurturing relationships. Many of us have been touched by a special teacher who was gifted not only in the art of instruction, but also in the ability to care. Nell Nottings, who grew up to become a math teacher, was inspired by the special kindness displayed by one of her early teachers. My seventh grade teacher was a very, very young woman. Might have been her first year in teaching. She had a heck of a job because she had a seventh and eighth grade in one classroom. I imagine 
picture this age group now, seventh and eighth grade in one classroom. I was enormously homesick because we had just moved from a school that I loved. Uh, it was our first year on the Jersey Shore. Uh, and then I got whooping cough, and I was out of school for about six weeks. This teacher came to visit, and she brought with her a quart jar of homemade tomato juice. I will never forget this because I did not like tomato juice, but from that day on, I loved tomato juice, and it's still my favorite juice even today. Because um, it was given in because love. Because it was given in love. Uh, and when I got back to school, I had been a, you know, a superb student, uh, but I wondered about what happened to my grades in that marking period, since I wasn't there the whole marking period. Uh, and all she did was to give a couple A minuses instead of A's. And of course, I will, I will never forget that. Uh, and I went on to uh, work harder and do even better. Today, Nell Nottings in New York City is a professor of education at Columbia University Teachers College and is also on the faculty at Stanford University. With her husband, she raised 10 children, half of them adopted. Nell is the author of Caring, a book that urges us to reprioritize the school system and set as the main objective to produce people who are not only academically proficient, but also skilled in caring and loving. She believes in moral education that teaches young people to have more empathy. Most schools don't focus on the kind of education you'd like to see. They emphasize competency in liberal arts subjects like reading and math and science. Why do you feel it's the place of schools to train the whole person? Well, uh, I would just point to the world around us and say, is, are we satisfied with what we see out there uh, with uh, violence, uh, among children with uh, peer harassment, and there have been several studies recently to show that that's the harassment kids fear. I mean, there are a lot of middle school youngsters in this country who are afraid to go to school, not because they'll be harassed by the teacher, but because they'll be harassed by peers. Uh, they're uh, you know, afraid to wear certain things, afraid to comb their hair in certain ways, afraid to speak in class because they'll be ridiculed and so forth. Uh, you, one could argue this way, that we have to pay attention to these things in order that kids will learn all the academic stuff. I don't like to put it that way because I think these things are important in themselves. Um, I do have a hunch that kids will learn the other stuff better if we take care of these things. But it isn't, we don't do these things simply for instrumental reasons. We do them because we have a, you know, a vision of a, a better world, a better society, a better way to relate to one another. What new skills would teachers at caring schools need to develop? Well, teachers can't be parents to their students and shouldn't be expected to be. That would be outrageous. Still, they need parenting skills. Uh, and among those skills would, would be uh, uh, a special kind of patience, I guess. Listening, listening skills are very important. Something my um, 
late colleague Mary Bud Rowe made popular, this thing called wait time. You know, you ask a question, uh, most teachers don't wait very long for an answer. Ten seconds and they're on to someone else, and she said, if you just wait, just be quiet. The child may wiggle a little bit, but will finally come out with something. So it ranges from that sort of technical thing that we, we know through uh, research to uh, probing a little more, you know, uh, receiving an answer, treating it as an important contribution, even if it's a wrong answer. I mean, if, with artistry, a teacher can take a, a wrong answer and make it into something more profound than it looks on the surface and really um, have it contribute to the lesson. So there are academic reasons for promoting listening skills, but then there are, of course, there are the human ones, so that you can sort of detect when a child wants your attention. Uh, if you have these listening skills, you can detect when this is a really important moment for the child and when it's kind of a superficial thing. You've raised some real concerns about the competitive system of grades and standardized testing. Yeah. What do you think is wrong with that system? Well, the way we're going at it now, almost everything, I guess. Um, first, I would like a system of schooling in which um, winning doesn't depend on someone else losing. I mean, that's first and foremost. And what we're doing now in pitting schools against one another uh, is, I think, unhealthy because it suggests that for there to be winners, you know, there, there have to be losers. And when you think about, and, and this I've actually seen in some school districts recently, suppose a school is told, okay, your uh, scores are below the median and you better do something about that get them up there. Uh, the staff may then look at the student scores, see that there are a bunch of kids just below the median, and so if you concentrate on those kids, you can get your average score up above the median. Now there are quite a few kids way, way below. Don't bother with them because that isn't going to change this median. That's one of those pernicious effects. The other thing is that if you concentrate too narrowly on tests, you can get kids to learn stuff for the test, and it'll be gone in a matter of weeks afterward. What in the educational process gets sacrificed by an overemphasis on grades and testing? Well, um, first of all, this, this concern with the whole person that we've been talking about, uh, the establishment of relations, uh, deep concern for whether the kids are growing uh, morally and emotionally as well as academically. And then, oddly enough, uh, perversely, I would say that real learning gets sacrificed too that when there's so much attention to learning for the test and giving specific answers, uh, you're likely to sacrifice the sort of depth of learning that has always been 
sort of, you know, the teacher's dream for our students. Certainly the joy of learning, the gets, joy of learning. gets thrown out the yeah. window when people are that's cramming right. for most tests. Yeah, that's right. Anyone who's ever hung around a young child for a while, a preschool child, knows that, that one of the fundamental characteristics of every child is a love of learning. Again, Parker Palmer, author of The Courage to Teach. Kids are infinitely curious. Uh, just spend an hour with a five-year-old and try to keep up with the questions and you'll know how curious they are. But in this fear-ridden atmosphere of, of so much of our schooling, where we somehow decide that no one will want to learn anything unless we threaten them with bad grades and other dire consequences, we shut everything down. We paralyze uh, students. We paralyze ourselves. Um, so I think fear is a very is a very deep running problem. How about in your experience uh, in the classroom as a teacher? Has fear been a feeling you've had? Oh, very much so. I, I, it, it's very interesting to look back. And when I was a student, I felt a lot of fear, fear of, of looking bad, fear of failing. I think when I was young, I thought, gee, if I could ever get on the other side of the desk, as it were, if I could become a teacher someday, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be afraid anymore. I'd have the power. But I think every teacher knows that when you stand up in front of a class or sit in a circle with a group of people, there's all kinds of fear at work. There, there's fear of, of not being adequate to the great ideas that you hope somehow to communicate. There's, there's fear of not serving your students well because you do care about them. Um, there's fear of, of not knowing the answer to something unexpected that arises, of not being able to handle um, a, a complicated situation that may emerge. So yes, I think, I think the teacher's life is full of fear, and yet it's one of the last things we acknowledge, let alone talk about, this in-service training that happens in public schools is so often about the latest tip, trick, or technique, uh, and not about this fundamental thing called fear. And how does an atmosphere in which people are afraid, students and teachers, color the educational experience? Well, I think it, it, you know, it, leads, to a, it leads to a life lived uh, playing your cards very close to your vest. That would be one image. Um, so, so not being open. Not being open, not being vulnerable, not being real. Students sitting in classrooms, in fearful classrooms, trying to psych out the teacher. You know, what does the teacher want me to say in response to this question? The teacher asking questions and desperately hoping that, that, that you won't get unexpected answers or answers that will be hard to handle. There's, there's a kind of tamping down of reality, I think, under the, these conditions of fear. And it carries on and on in our lives, as far as I can tell, um, people being unreal in all kinds of settings. And, and we have to learn that, that unreality does not serve us well. <laughs> um, Thoreau once said, reality is fabulous. And I think he's absolutely right. Even if reality is difficult and challenging, 
It's fabulous because it's what we've got. Don't try to make up a world that doesn't exist. Deal with what you've got and you will find health and wholeness in it. Talking with Parker Palmer in Madison, Wisconsin, and earlier in the program with Nell Noddings in New York. been listening to Humankind with David Freudberg. In a moment, we'll give you information on how to obtain copies of this series. Humankind is written and produced by David Freudberg. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Associate producer is Tom Bryan. Editorial assistance from Tony Buck. The program is presented in association with far-reaching communications and interlock media. Humankind is produced by Human Media Foundation. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This is Humankind program number two, Teaching from Within. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.